0: Thank you guys for leading worship well and being wholehearted in it. We are incredibly blessed. What we began to engage last week and will engage again this week is a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he's engaging the problem of those who are struggling with these misplaced, consuming cares about worldly matters. Last week, Jesus in his breathed-out word made it very clear that life is more than stuff. This is a very necessary message, a necessary reminder for us in a season where we're being bombarded with a contrary message. You're, on, you're constantly hearing advertisements and things that aim to make you anxious. They want you to say, oh, if you're not careful, you're going to miss out on this deal or miss out on this event or miss out on this experience, and that should cause anxiety. So they want to draw you in, and that's That's actually very counter to what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. So let's pray and ask God to guide our morning. Lord, this morning my prayer is specifically that you would warn us. We are so easily distracted. um, And the distractions are normally not very easy to overcome. And so I pray that this morning, according to your word... Uh, that you would warn us, that you would guard our hearts, that you would guide us, that you would give us insight into things we should not be consumed with and troubled over. In a like manner, I pray that you would cause us to have greater understanding in what we should care about and the directions we should be spent. Lord, also this morning, I, I don't have any particular pastor to pray for, but I feel led to just pray particularly for the congregations in the area. I pray that this morning, right now, there are entire congregations gathering and worshiping you and enjoying you and treasuring you and not just their version of you. God, you are infinite in wisdom and majesty, and splendor, and greatness. You are great. You're greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. And so I pray that there are not congregations meeting that feel like they have you generally figured out. I pray that there's not congregations meeting that are (coughs) um, uh, underwhelmed by uh, your goodness. Uh, But I pray that, um, that your people are treasuring you this morning. Not just for what you do, but for who you are. Lord, we count it a privilege to gather here to worship you. To, to have the work of the Spirit and to know you at all. To have any understanding at all as a gift. And I'm very thankful for it. And I pray that as we go through the word this morning, that you would give us greater understanding. Not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of life that glorifies you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Matthew 6. If you haven't turned there yet. We'll be in verses 25 through 34. And Before we dive into the text, I want to make, it, uh, make a point that this sermon and last week's sermon are not just a timely message for the holidays. Jesus is, in fact, addressing a problem that each of us face in all of life, not just the holidays. Each of us has reason after reason after reason to lean in the direction of stress and anxiety and being overwhelmed with the wrong things. Last week, as I prepared a message on anxiety, I was filled with it. As I preached a message on anxiety, I was anxiety ridden. And when I was done, frankly, I didn't feel any better. I went and sat over there and thought, What was that? Lord, anxiety, I am filled with it. I'm a sinner. Um, I didn't feel any better. The reason for that is that anxiety and stress—it's a hard thing to shake. It's not the kind of thing where you just say some truth that is truth and it's beautiful, and you're just like, man, I feel so much better immediately. Yesterday we we went and we had weighed possibly making a purchase on an item, and I, we waited and waited and waited, and I was like, all right, I'm, let's let's go ahead and do that. I'm going to go in and I'm going to make that purchase, and I came out to find that my daughter had uh, taken a rock and written her name in the side of the car, and. <laughs> Oh, it was her name, and then O, and then Q, real big. And uh, maybe not that big, but might as well have been. And uh, and I thought to myself, it's, it, it's just a car. It's just a worldly thing. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Rust can destroy this car. And I'm trying to remind myself of all these things, and I felt no better. I was totally overwhelmed with I can't believe she did that. I couldn't even give her a spanking because I was so mad and angry about, you wrote your name in the side of the car. And so, and I get to go work on the sermon here in about two hours. And um, I say all that because I've had plenty of reminders in the preaching of uh, a sermon against anxiety and in real life matters that um, those feelings are very hard to shake. Stress and consuming cares are overwhelming by nature of their existence. And Jesus speaks... (laughs) With this incredible depth of insight in his sermon, and with infinite wisdom that cuts to the core of this very overwhelming feeling. Now, I say feeling on purpose, because I want us to be very mindful of the truth, that our feelings do not define our reality. And Jesus speaks to that in his sermon. He says, just because you feel a certain way, doesn't mean it is a certain way. Like, yes, her name is in the side of the car, it's not the end of the world. You feel overwhelmed and the the day's done, it's ruined, but it's not. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean that that's the reality of what actually is because God's always doing more. My emotions do not define my reality. Matthew 6, verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? He has just touched on the fact that you can't serve two masters. If you try to serve God and money, which we can serve money in a lot of ways that some of them we can make them look fairly righteous, but it's just sin cloaked in a fake righteousness. You can't serve both God and money. And when you try to serve both God and money, what happens is you end up um, despising one of them. And so he says you can't, you can't serve both. You, you got to figure out who, who you're serving, who's, who's your master. And he says that anxiety is, in fact, a form of pride. Because as we saw on another satellite last week that, that um, he says to humble yourselves before me, casting your anxieties on me. So if you're not humbling yourself before him and you're holding on, then you're holding on to your anxieties. And rather than anxiety being something to be pitied and even, you know, honored because that means you really care, it's actually a form of pride. Life is more than stuff. That was a big point last week. And Jesus says, "Look at the birds." Anyone look at the birds this week? It was. Uh, it's not the, the the first thing that jumps into our minds. I'm very stressed. Let me go look at the birds. Um, But Jesus makes it really clear that it's important that we look at the birds. And this week, like I said, we're going to get crazy and consider the lilies. Look at verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider how long ago this was. Our anxieties about clothing are just multiplied again and again today. Uh, But this was a long time ago when they didn't have a thousand stores to go to. And why are you anxious about clothing? It's interesting. Consider... The lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon is often pointed to for his wisdom, but don't don't covet his glory. It pales in comparison to the lilies. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's a huge promise. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Again, it may be timely because of the holidays, but don't just limit this to a holiday message. This is your whole life. This morning, we're going to consider three types of cares. This is sort of our roadmap for the morning. Bird's eye view. Three types of cares. The first one, if you're taking notes, which all of you should be all the time. Number one, we're going to consider misplaced consuming cares. Misplaced consuming cares. Number two, we're going to consider carelessness. And number three, we're going to consider God honoring cares. He doesn't just say don't care. He actually outlines what we should be caring about. So if we look back at verse 28 in Matthew 6, we see him say, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies. See, in pointing us to the lilies, God is first pointing us away from ourselves. Away from ourselves. That's very, very important. Nothing breeds anxiety more than sitting and thinking about yourself and your life and your to-do list and your days to come. This is what I will refer to as misplaced consuming cares. They're misplaced because God says they don't need to be there because he's trustworthy. They're consuming because they take the focus of our hearts away from treasures in heaven. And they consume us with thoughts and focus to earthly, fleeting, moth-prone, rust-prone, stealable stuff. So Jesus says to consider the lilies, which is a step beyond just looking at them. He says, consider them. And in in doing so, we're drawn away from thinking about ourselves. Some of us are given too much to introspection and self-analysis. A lot of us sitting here right now, I know many of you, are given way too much to introspection and self-analysis. I'll be honest, before I was preparing for this sermon, I don't know if I ever gave much thought to the possibility of too much thought, if that makes sense. I, in fact, am very concerned with a lack of thoughtfulness in our churches. It's a concern of mine. I'm concerned, and I, I think it's legitimate concern, that many in the faith do not take seriously the call to be fully convinced as to what they believe. Like Romans 14 says, we're very, some of us can be very wishy-washy in our faith, where it's like, what do you believe? I don't know, what do you think about that? I don't know, I'll figure that out at some point. It's just kind of this wishy-washy, treating belief as something flippant or, 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 or trite, and it's not. He says, be fully convinced. Because if you're not fully convinced, you won't be very convincing when it comes time to share the gospel of truth. See, the flip side of this is that there is a very real threat that we spend so much time considering our thoughts on particular biblical truths that we never live the particular biblical truths. That's what I'm getting at here. You think about it, you think about it, you think about it. Are you living it? Is this a thought that's applied to your life? So even if you're fully capable of giving sound reason for your belief, it becomes quickly dismissed if you don't live those truths out. People will look at your life and say, I hear what you say, but I also see what you do. And it doesn't add up. And one very real way that Jesus tells us and helps us to combat this imbalance of so much introspection and self-analysis rather than living in that truth is to consider the more ultimate realities that exist outside of ourselves. What's most important in your life doesn't exist inside of yourself, it exists outside of yourself. So he says to consider these things outside of yourselves like lilies and birds, which at first glance may seem Sort of simple, unimpressive, but when you consider what God's doing, it will blow your mind. If I was to spend the majority of my sermon giving you observations, my observations on lilies and birds, we would all miss the point. When you see a sermon title, look at the birds and consider the lilies, you might be thinking, I want to know what the secrets are about the birds and lilies. I don't have much to share with you. You would only have a handful of facts while nothing in the way of actual experience. Does that make sense? All you'd have is a handful of facts that you heard from someone else but didn't experience yourself. God wants me to do more than distract you from yourself with some of my thoughts on birds and lilies. The encouragement Jesus wants you to hear is that you need to go and look at the birds and you need to go and consider the lilies. So if you're thinking, tell me about these birds and lilies, it's probably not going to happen, but, but you should go look and you should go and consider. Jesus says it's really important. Considering looking away from ourselves, this this thought or idea of, of self-forgetfulness. Jesus says, consider the lilies. Don't just consider yourself and your own thoughts and your own things going on. It's been said that the only way to self-forgetfulness is an indirect path. What that means is, the only way to self-forgetfulness is an indirect path. That means that um, if I say, okay, I want you all to leave here today and go and think about forgetting about yourselves, you would likely be led in a process of thought that leads back to yourself, which is doesn't really accomplish anything. So if, if you want to go down the path of self-forgetfulness, it has to be sort of an indirect path. You're not necessarily needing to just be distracted so that you forget about yourself, but there's an indirect path towards self-forgetfulness. In a church full of reformed and reforming thinkers, readers, writers teachers, artists, and professionals, I think there is a definite threat of too much introspection. I really do. And while this deep thought can be a good thing, it becomes a bad thing when it keeps us from living our lives according to the truth. I've heard Steve Roberts refer to it as paralysis by analysis. It's a great term, paralysis by analysis. You're so busy analyzing everything and how you feel about it and what you think about it that you're not living it. Many of us fall into the folly of thinking that our thoughts are what are most important, but our thoughts serve the purpose of guiding our living. So when Jesus says, consider the lilies, he's saying, get outside of yourself. We're so consumed with our own self. He's saying, get outside of yourself and consider how your thoughts serve the purpose of guiding and serving your living We are fully convinced so that we might rightly walk by faith. But thinking is not walking, is it? Just because you've thought about something doesn't mean you've mastered it or walked in it. Just because you hear a sermon about something doesn't mean you've lived it. You've heard that before from this pulpit. Whether it is looking at the birds or considering the lilies, we're looking away from ourselves and we're observing circumstances where we're reminded of God's provision, God's care, and God's faithfulness. And we should be thankful that he surrounds us with such things. It won't take long for you to go find a bird and be reminded. And that'll provide us with a greater clarity than if we sat stirring and wondering if God was really going to keep up his end of the deal, doing what we want him to do. Consider these following quotes. I have some quotes that I'd like to share And I'm not real big on sharing a whole lot of quotes, and this is more quotes than I would normally share. But I want to share these, and I've chosen these specifically because they come from great thinkers. The quotes I'm about to share come from really great thinkers who are more consumed, thinkers, writers, artists, they're more consumed with God's kingdom than they are their thoughts about God's kingdom. Does that make sense? they're more concerned with God's kingdom than just their thoughts about God's kingdom. And so these great thinkers who help us to have greater understanding say this in reference to self-forgetfulness and proper focus. John Piper, a guy a lot of y'all are familiar with, says periodic self-examination is needed and wise and biblical. It's good to sit with your Bible and say, okay, look, looking inside, what's going on? He said it's good, it's wise, it's biblical. But for the most part... Mental health is the use of the mind to focus on worthy reality outside of ourselves. C.S. Lewis says, in introspection, we try to look inside of ourselves and see what's going on, but nearly everything that was going on a moment before is stopped by the very act of our turning to look at it. Get it? You cannot study pleasure in the moment of nuptial embrace. Think about. Don't think about it too much, but think about it cannot study pleasure in the moment of nuptial embrace. You cannot study repentance while repenting. You cannot analyze the nature of humor while roaring with laughter, because if you do, you stop the whole thing. But when else can you really know these things? What I'm getting at is that some of us regularly miss out on the moment because we're thinking about it rather than living in it. We can regularly miss out on the moment in life where we can live in this way that God is is honored and where he's glorified, but we miss out on it because we're too busy thinking about it and we're not living in it. Clyde Kilby says, I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day I shall simply stare at a flower, a cloud, a person, or a tree. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow the mystery of what Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. The tree he's looking at. Divine, magical, terrifying, and ecstatic existence. Look at it. See, I I was thinking this morning that a lot of us will write songs to try to affect others with something we've not yet been affected with. Sometimes we'll look at a tree or a flower or we'll experience something. It's like, man, I want to write a song about that or a poem about that or whatever. Whatever. And we haven't let it run us through. We haven't really experienced the thing, but we think somehow we have an ability to go and write something that affects other people that has not yet affected us. Sometimes it doesn't need a song or a poem. Just look at it. Look at the tree. Look at the bird. Consider the lily. And once you've lingered long enough, as the poet lingers, you've heard that before, then maybe it's time to say something to affect others. But not before it's run you through. Clyde Kilby goes on to say, I'm going to put this on the wall in my office when I'm done today. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. Is that encouraging leadership for you? (laughs) Last week it was, you need to be passionate about what I tell you to be passionate about. And this week it's, just forget about yourself and do your work. That's not the life I want. Well, Jesus says there's something to this. Spurgeon also commented on God's remedy for discouragement that comes from misplaced consuming cares. We have these misplaced consuming cares. And Spurgeon says this. He who forgets the humming of the bees among the heather. Some of us can't forget that because we've never known that. He who forgets the humming of the bees among the heather, the cooing of the wood pigeons in the forest, the song of the birds in the woods, the rippling of rills among the rushes, and the sighing of the wind among the pines. He who forgets these things needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows heavy. A day's breathing of fresh air upon the hills or a few hours ramble in the beech woods and brageous calm would sweep the cobwebs out of the brain of scores of our toiling ministers who are not but half alive. Would you refer to yourself as but half alive? A mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face would not give grace to the soul. But it would yield oxygen to the body, which is next best. So when you hear Jesus address our problem with worldly worries by telling us to consider the lilies, we can know that to do so will minister to our souls deeply. And he doesn't just say, if it makes sense to you, consider the lilies. If it, if it rings true in your heart, look at the birds. He says, look at the birds and consider the lilies and know that I'm speaking a message through that that you won't understand if you don't do it. That's one of the hard things about this sermon. This is a sermon on, of realities that I cannot convince you of and just hope you'll go and do. Go look at the birds, go consider the lilies. I can only hope we will walk by faith in response to the word. Now, God wants his children to have deep serenity and peace. For some of y'all that might be a surprise because we have kind of a skewed view of God. I was reading this week about many kings on earth who have led their kingdoms and what they really want is for their kingdom to be filled with anxiety-ridden people. And what they want is the, the subjects in their kingdom to want the king's approval so that they will get what they need and they'll get the ration of food and they'll get the drink that they need and they'll have the clothes that they need because the king controls all that. So one strategy of many earthly kings is to try to keep the people in a place where they're anxiety ridden and very much desirous of having his approval. But anxiety breeds dependence on the wrong thing. Anxiety breeds dependence on the wrong thing. If you're filled with anxiety and you think you're truly dependent on God, you're not because that anxiety has breeded a dependence in you on the wrong thing. You're not dependent on God if you're full of anxiety. There's this, this thought that that king would want his people to live up to his expectations. But, but when Jesus enters the scenario for us, it really changes that, doesn't it? We don't live every day trying to meet God's expectations in hope that he'll give us what we need. That's not how our king works. Our king has given his son that we might not be an anxiety-ridden people. Christ's righteousness is counted as yours, So rather than trying to please God in hopes that he'll give us what we need, in God's eyes, he's pleased because Christ's righteousness accomplished for you what you could not accomplish on your own. So we're not serving a king that we hope will be pleased and give us what we need. Our king does not want to be the king of a kingdom of anxiety-ridden people. He aims to relieve us of our anxiety and our stress and misplaced consuming cares by a finished work in Jesus Christ, that we might live for his glory daily. So rather than hoping it'll go well with him, he's saying, I don't want you to live in that way. You live for my glory. And in fact, I gave my son so that you could. I gave my son so that you wouldn't have to try to earn my blessing and earn my provision every day. I don't aim to be the king of an anxiety-ridden people. Now, when I say that God wants you to have deep serenity, and, peace and not be consumed with misplaced cares. I think there's an appropriate time here for a warning. We're not pointing to a hippie lifestyle of carelessness. It's not what I'm talking about. If it, you might be sitting there thinking, man, that sounds good. If it's that effective, I'm going to spend all my time looking at the birds, and I'm going to spend all my time considering the lilies. I'm going to rename my child Lily and my son Bird. And no, it, it doesn't... Um, If your name is Lily, you're precious, and you know that if you're in here. Um, And I don't think your parents are hippies at all. (laughs) Maybe. But he's not pointing to a lifestyle of carelessness. Pantheism is a school of thought that says nature and God are pretty much the same. And they can go out and enjoy nature as though they were enjoying God. And it's just kind of this, it's the same thing. This is cool. I enjoy this. I'm just going to spend all my time doing this. But just because you're enjoying the sunshine on your face does not mean you're considering anything about God. He's certainly active. He's certainly blessing you at that moment. But that doesn't mean you're considering anything about him. Nature and God are not the same. And the same God who strongly encourages you not to be filled with misplaced, consuming cares, the same God who says, you need to take the time to look at the birds and you need to take your children and go outside and consider the lilies, the same God who says those very comforting, peaceful sounding things is the same God who has much to say against idleness and against laziness. This could be a whole other sermon in itself, and it probably will be in January. We'll consider a few brief points. Proverbs 5 says that a lack of discipline brings death. If you're undisciplined, don't just say, huh, it brings death. Proverbs 6 says that laziness is a lack of wisdom. And it leads quickly to poverty. It says that wisdom includes preparation and hard work. So which is it? Is it look at the lilies and consider the lilies and look at the birds? Or is it hard work? And the answer is yes. See, in Genesis, it's jo- we're going through the Genesis, uh, a Genesis study uh, on Wednesday nights. And we're considering the life of Joseph right now. And it's such a great picture of wisdom and long-suffering and patience and endurance. And what we see in Joseph's life is a work ethic, follow-through, diligence, an attention to details that sets him apart from all the people who don't love God. You can look at the life of Joseph and you see, man, he's diligent. He's got follow through. Anywhere he's at, he's he's succeeding because God's causing him to succeed, but he's exercising this wisdom and this insight and this diligence so much so that he's put in prison as a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison. And the Egyptian prison guard says, wow, you're pretty sharp. Here's the keys. You're in charge now. I'm going to go eat a sandwich. I mean, you, you must have a serious work ethic for that to happen. He had never overseen a prison before. He just was in the situation he was in, and he was living it to the full for the glory of God. There weren't a whole lot of other people talking about God. And what happens is he ends up before the Pharaoh, and he says, the Pharaoh, who thinks he's God, says, I've had a dream. This is this is this. What do you think? And Joseph says, I'll tell you what God thinks. That's how we live life rightly. In any and every circumstance, what is it that God thinks? What is it that God wants? Joseph's life was set apart. It was different because of how hard he worked. He wasn't just a lily-gazing, bird-watching hippie. He had a hard work ethic, and he did things, and he had follow-through, and he was dependable. And if he said he was going to do something, he would do it. So I don't want you to see this as like an attempt at humor or a poke at laziness or something that's funny. Some of us think that we don't need to hear a sermon about anxiety. Some of us are sitting here thinking we don't need to hear a sermon about anxiety because we don't struggle with it. But you, I'm not pointing at anybody, but you may not struggle with it because you're lazy and idle and undisciplined. So don't be mistaken. While God does not want you overwhelmed with consuming cares about tomorrow, he does not want you to live a life of carelessness. In these coming verses, particularly verse 30, we're going to see what God says is proper care. Not a misplaced consuming care, not carelessness, but this is proper care. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into heaven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith. This is a faith issue. This is not just a behavioral issue. Stop worrying. Well, if you're worshiping God rightly, you won't worry because it means you trust him. And when you're trusting him, what you're experiencing as you trust him is that he always gives you what you need. The phrase O ye of little faith is used multiple times by Jesus as he addresses his disciples and his followers. And in using this phrase in conjunction with this encouragement to consider the lilies, Jesus is shedding light on the place where we should focus our cares. What I'm getting at is that Jesus seems regularly concerned with a lack of faith and a deficiency of faith. Too many of our Christian brothers and sisters are only concerned with a possible absence of faith. Y'all hear that? If someone's not believing and they have no faith... That's a concern. Tell them about Jesus. If someone has a lack of faith or a deficiency of faith or they're struggling, tell them about Jesus. Jesus has great concern over lacking and deficient faith, not just an absence of faith. If you're only concerned with the absence of faith and not a lack or deficiency of it, this is the thinking that's turned corporate worship into weekly revivals and puts great emphasis on decisionism as opposed to discipleship. You've heard about that from this pulpit a lot. That's the thinking. I actually heard a leader one time say, I only have time for leaders and lost people. I was like, okay, cool. What about the church, pastor? That doesn't add up. We should be concerned with a lack or deficiency of faith. We should be concerned here proper care. Here, God-honoring cares like Jesus when there's a lack of faith in our lives or others' lives. And one sign of a lack of faith is that you don't have time to look at the birds and you don't have time to consider the lilies. That's a sign of a lack of faith. Why? Because you're so consumed with stress about tomorrow and if Jesus is really going to provide like he said he would. Jesus aims to save both the lost and the lost. And the troubled from consuming cares that he's already tending to. That's what we're going to get to look at in these next verses. But before we go to the next verses, I want to ask you the question. Do we receive joy from tending to situations where there is a lack or deficiency of faith? Or are we just like the world in what makes us happy? Are we just like the world in what makes us happy? Do we find our greatest pleasures in things that are fleeting? Do we care about what God says is His pleasure? Do we need a perfect work environment? Do we need absolute certain financial guarantees of success in the coming days? Does God's involvement in the personal details of your life even matter to you? Because Jesus goes on to say in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Without food or drink, you eventually get sick and die. It's not very subtle, but don't miss it. Without clothes, you're unable to go about doing what you need. Because we're a fallen people who are aware, like Adam and Eve, that we're naked. And we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus says, don't worry about these things, particularly food, drink, and clothes. When he says, don't worry about them, he is not deeming them unimportant or unnecessary. Don't make the jump. That's a fairly simple jump to make. If I said, hey, don't worry about what time it is there would be maybe an implication to many of you that it doesn't matter what time it is. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't worry about that, but I'm not deeming those things unimportant. Food's important. Drink's important. Clothes are important. If any of us went out without any of those things today, things would go south very quickly. He's saying... Rather than saying they're unimportant and unnecessary, what God's saying is, I got that. That's what he's saying. That's why this is really good news. He's not just trying to convince us that we don't need something. He's saying, I know you need it. I got it. I'm worrying about those things so that you don't have to because I'm God and I can worry in a way that's not sinful. You can't. I've got those things. The Gentiles worry about these things because they don't know me yet. They don't get that I am a very active and loving and personal God of provision. But you're supposed to be different. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're supposed to be different. The Gentiles worry about these things, but you don't. I'm God. and I'm yours. Because I am your God, I know your deepest needs, and I know that these things are important. He's reminding us again. To be careful not to be consumed with cares that he never meant for us to bear on our own. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Like the first, that previous verse about ye of little faith, that that shines a little bit of light on what we should care about. But this verse is like a big spotlight. He's like, you want to know what to care about? You want to know where to spend and be spent gladly? You want to know what needs to consume your thoughts? My kingdom seek it first. This is where Jesus shines this bright light on what we need to be consumed with his kingdom. To seek his righteousness is no less than seeking Christ in all things. Romans 10 says for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Whenever you see righteousness think Jesus because without Jesus you have no hope of being counted right in God's eyes. To seek his righteousness is no less than seeking Christ in all things. Hear God's voice. He's saying, don't be consumed with what will be tomorrow, because today I have plans for you. Today, I want you to be all in when it comes to um, my kingdom and your marriage. Seek my kingdom in your marriage. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness in your finances. Seek my kingdom in your friendships, in your work, in your parenting, My kingdom is not limited to Sunday mornings. Seek it all the time in all things you do. And the other things that you generally worry about, you'll find you don't have to because I got it. I have plans for my glory and your joy. What Jesus is saying is that when your greatest pursuit is that his glory is put on display, seek first the kingdom. If that's your greatest pursuit, you'll receive more satisfaction and joy than you would have otherwise ever known. I promise, and I can say I promise because Jesus promises. So when you go to God, when you go to our Lord, it is amazing. In Philippians, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to him, and he will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ with a peace that exceeds understanding. You don't have to understand everything. He gives a peace that's more important than the understanding But what we see here is that when you go to him and you tell him those things which cause you your greatest stress and anxiety, which by the way, you can't really hide that from God. He knows. When you go and you tell him those things that cause you the greatest stress and anxiety, he doesn't respond by telling you you're ridiculous. If you get that feel this morning in the sermon, that's not what God does. He doesn't look at you and say, idiot, what did I tell you? He responds by telling you, I know. I know food's important. I know drink is important. I know your clothing is important. And I know, and I've got it. I really hope this comforts you. I hope it comforts you. I hope you don't make the mistake of thinking he's talking about your wants, because he's talking about your needs. And sometimes we think we need a whole lot more than we actually need. But don't miss the huge promise in these verses. God says that if we seek his kingdom first, he's going to take care of the other stuff. God, who has never broken a promise, is saying, you live for me, and you put my glory on display in every facet of your life, and I guarantee I'll give you exactly what you need when you need it. If your greatest concern is my kingdom, then you'll have everything you need as a member of it. So I got to ask a question, do you believe that? Because some of y'all might be sitting there saying, I don't know about that. I got some needs. Is God sleeping right now? Do you believe that? This is a matter of faith. If we walk by sight, we don't need faith. If you knew everything and how it was exactly going to pan out all the time, you'd be walking by sight and you wouldn't need faith. The richest man in the world needs great faith. He doesn't just say, well, you know, I can pay for what I need. I don't need faith. That's foolishness. Do you secretly expect that things are going to go south? Do you secretly expect that God won't hold up his end of the deal? There's no such thing as a God-fearing believer who is seeking first the kingdom of God that doesn't have the essentials needed to carry on in life. This was a great comfort for me in early days of my ministry at Cross Point. When I first came here about seven years ago, First of all, I had a really skewed view of what my needs were. Bad skewed view of what my needs were. I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. Ooh, I need two of those, you know. It gets out of hand. And I remember when I came on, at first it was like 150 bucks a week and I'd been married for a few months and I wanted to stay married and uh, I thought, <laughs> 150 bucks a week, someone's gonna get mad. Um, and and, I, and I, I looked at it and the math didn't make sense. I was like, uh, I don't know how that's gonna work. And I became very consumed with, you know, maybe God's not calling me here. Uh, I feel called to ministry. I know I'm not perfect. I got my own financial messes and I feel called to do this. And I want to seek God's kingdom first, but I'm not. I just, I want to seek his kingdom first, but I'm not sure if it's really going to work out. I just don't, I don't know if the the math is going to add up. And God brought me great comfort. By reminding me of these verses. And essentially what God brought to my mind. It wasn't an audible voice. The clouds didn't part. But he brought to my mind. Something that was a great comfort. He, he just said. How many people do you know in ministry. Who have died to exposure of the elements lately. That's a good point. How many do you know around here. That even had to sleep outside one night. God that's a, that's a good point. I don't know too many people here. But surely someone would let us sleep with them If we had to. In their house. And. And. He said, how often do you hear of people not getting the food they need to do? I mean, seriously, if you're seeking first the kingdom, do you really think you need to worry about basic provision? And what God was doing with me was he was peeling back saying, you don't need this, and you don't need that, and you need to get rid of that because that's just bad stewardship. That's foolish. You shouldn't have had that in the first place, and you know it. And he said, "Get, get, get rid of this and get rid of that. And then he said, I'll take care of you, I promise. And I'm telling you, that was a great comfort to me. It was very personal. I remember driving down 34... And a Bronco that I didn't know would make it home, I wasn't sure. And I thought, I don't know anybody who's experienced the problems I'm actually concerned with. And I think that God is worthy of trust. I think he keeps his promises. See, this comforts us because we know that the absolute worst that could happen, for all of you sitting here, the absolute worst that can happen is your life ends. And for believers, this life isn't all that there is. (laughs) Like, this should be a comfort. You might be thinking, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> but really, the worst thing that happens is your life ends. And For believers, we know that this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's much greater things in store. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. See, the problem is that many of us are really more consumed with building our own little kingdoms. Rather than seeking first the kingdom of God, a lot of us are very consumed with building our own little kingdoms where we want to be our king. This is my kingdom. This is my house, king of the castle. If you think that you get to decide what you need and don't need, then you are trying to be your own God of your own little kingdom. You don't get to decide that. So if you're thinking, I don't know if God really provides what we need, he'll define the need for you, and he'll provide it. Walk in it. Live in it. Don't worry about a week from now. Live in it in the, to the full that very day for the glory of God in every possible way you can. Do you trust your own abilities over God's abilities? Do you trust God for next week's provision? Or do you trust your own ability to get up, go to work, and bring home a check? Really? Because it's good to get up and go to work and bring home a check, but do you trust that over God's provision? Are you putting your faith in your investments? Or does your peace come from knowing that God will still be God tomorrow? And the next day, and the next day, God will still be God. Turn to Haggai 1. It's towards the end of your Old Testament. I'm sure many of you were there this morning already in Haggai. Uh, I think it's page 791 in the ESV Bibles, I think. It's after Zephaniah. If you're familiar with Zephaniah, I don't know if that helps us. It's before Zechariah. It might be more familiar. Haggai, or Haggai, depending on where you're from. Chapter 1. The issue in the book of Haggai is this. The Lord's house, the temple, lies in ruins, and the people are doing nothing about it, okay? The prophet Haggai, he hears from the Lord to relay a message to the people that God wants his people to hear. God's not normally in the business of just flapping his jaws and hearing himself talk, So when you hear a prophet speak on behalf of the Lord, or when you hear him say, uh, I am the Lord, or thus says the Lord of hosts, pay attention, because God's not real flippant and trite with his words. They're really important, every single one of them. And so he's speaking to Haggai, so that Haggai will tell the people that God's saying, it's time to rebuild the temple. But the people are not doing anything about it. And what I want you to look at as I read Haggai 1 verses 1 through 11, listen to what it is that keeps the people from building the Lord's house. Listen to what is keeping them from building the Lord's house. Verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. He's kind of calling them out here. Haggai? These people say it's not time to rebuild my house. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, while this house lies in ruins? God saying, looks like things are pretty well in order over at your crib. What's the deal with mine? It's a mess. What have you all done? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's not just a little project that he wants them to get done. He's saying, consider your ways, because your ways are getting in the way of what I told you I have pleasure in, and you should care about what I want, because I'm God. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You have uh, uh, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You're, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. I don't, I mean, that's not a good place to keep your money, right? A bag with a hole in it, falls out, goes away. That would be bad stewardship. Use some of your money to buy a new bag. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's talking about the way that they're living. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. So you had these treasures, and God went, gone it goes. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. Who's in charge of the heaven? It's the Lord. And the earth has withheld its produce, Who caused that to happen? And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. This is the opposite of what we hear in Matthew 6. Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom. I'll give you everything you need. Neglect the house of the Lord. Look what happened. God has said it's time to rebuild his house the people said, no, it isn't. God calls them out. He says, it looks like you're really, really busy. You all look very busy. God says to the people that Haggai is the prophet for, he says to his people, you look real busy. You look like you're, go- oh, y'all are all going in a thousand directions. What about my house? Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Oh, your house. Yeah, you need to do that. You need to do that over here. I get it. That's fine. Um, what about what I told you to do? Your attention is void of my desires, is what God is saying. Interestingly, this was a time of year uh, when the harvest was just about over. So what what God's people are doing is they're looking back at a not-so-great harvest. And they're troubled by the days to come because they're looking at what's on the barns, and they're saying, this is not looking like it's going to be very good. And God explains why their situation is as such. He says, you didn't tend to what I told you to tend to, so guess what? The dew from the heavens... I, go, I called that off. Uh, the harvest from the ground, I'm going to go ahead and ease up on that too. That's what God said. That's what he did to his people because they weren't caring about what he told them to care about. God is not okay with, with us being busy with our own house and our own household and our own affairs and not with his. He says that's neglect. Don't neglect things that are of great value. I want to be careful. Again, this isn't about getting rich. People can use this and say, see, if you do what you're supposed to do, the Lord's going to bless you abundantly and make you very rich. We're talking about needs, not wants. Look at verse 34 back in Matthew 6. Last verse in the chapter. Kind of reiterates what he started at the beginning of this section. 634. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God wants us to be all in today. And if we're consumed with tomorrow and what might or might not happen, we're wasting our very lives. Because tomorrow just becomes another tomorrow, and the next day just becomes another next day, as opposed to living in the day today for the glory of God. So people can see how great he is and worship him. Because the whole purpose of this entire existence is that the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. And if you don't care about that today, you're probably not going to care about it tomorrow because you're just going to keep fast-forwarding your cares. Stress and anxiety can invade the life of any individual. You are not immune. I hope that some of you, at least, are sitting there saying, you know what? We're in a pretty good spot. I'm not freaking out right now. I'm hearing this message, and I'm good. I'm good. I hope some of you are there, but I want you to realize you're not immune. We can be stressed about having too little money or too much money. We can be stressed about being single or being married. We can be stressed about having kids and about not having kids. We can be stressed about having too much time and not having enough time. And God says, sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Don't miss what this means. This means that God allots or allows a certain amount of trouble. Just like he did in Haggai's time. For each day. That we might trust him completely that day and lean on him and not our own understanding. What I mean is that if God didn't want there to be any trouble in your day, there wouldn't be. When you look at your day and say, man, there's some troubles here. (laughs) Know that God's not like, oh, my bad. He knows. In fact, I would offer... That he is our ever present help in trouble that he ordains. His mercies are new every morning because we need them that day. His mercies are new every morning because we need them that day. And mercy is too precious of a thing to waste and dismiss. Why would you waste and dismiss mercy? That would be like someone giving you the vial that's the cure to cancer. And you're saying, huh, you don't waste things that are precious, you don't waste things that matter, you don't waste mercy. We have it every day because we need it every day. You don't waste things that are precious. So my encouragement is make your plans. Don't be undisciplined and lazy and idle. Make your plans. Balance your checkbook. Set a budget. Set your schedule. Make your plans because all of that is part of today's trouble. Making your plans is part of today's trouble. But not overwhelming trouble. Trouble that we work in and move in while we trust God implicitly because of his promises. It's really good news. I'm hoping that someone this morning is walking and saying, man, that is, that's great. God's good. Wow. Jesus takes care of us. He doesn't just say, good luck. Make your plans, but make them in faith, not worrying how they'll actually pan out. And don't trust your plans. Trust the God of the plan. It is good that most things are out of your control. Oh, man, there's some of us sitting here who are just control freaks. You're thinking, no, it's not. (laughs) It is good that most things are out of your control. What is in your control is how you live your life today, according to what Jesus has said. Today. I even have to be careful in the way that I talk to our small group shepherds and we send out shepherds guides because I don't want you to leave here and go and consider how this is just going to affect your week. Given what we've engaged this morning, I want you to turn your attention Godward and consider how these truths affect today. Look at the birds, consider the lilies, and seek first the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that your word is timely given the seasons we are in, and it's just a beautiful reflection of your wisdom and the fact that you are sovereign, and the fact that you guide us in everything, the fact that you warn us. Lord, I am thankful that your ways are no doubt higher than our ways, and I'm thankful that we get to live for a kingdom that's coming. I'm thankful that we seek first your kingdom here on earth and the kingdom that will be for eternity. I'm thankful that that you don't leave us to just be consumed with stuff here until later on you decide to come back when it's time. I'm thankful that you have a plan right now that is in order and you aim to use all of your children as vessels of mercy to spend and be spent gladly. If we're filled with anxiety and we're filled with stress, that's not going to happen. People aren't going to look at us and say, tell me about your God. But that's what we want, Lord. We want to put your glory on display so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Lord, some of us sitting here may need to reflect on the prayer that we've seen before of, uh, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because stress and anxiety are not just things that we easily shake off because someone said something that was true. That truth has to run us through, and the work of the Spirit has to do what it does so that we might trust you. So again, we trust you. Thank you for being so incredibly good. Thank you that you are God, and there's no one like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: I'm really growing in thankfulness, growing in thankfulness for this supper we're about to have in a moment. Uh, my hope. Uh, In preparing and and leading us into that uh, is to take this preach word that we're hearing week to week and run (laughs) to this supper and this reminder of who Christ is. And over the past few weeks, we've heard of the need to get the gospel right uh, and to see the law for what it is. It's, 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 it's holiness and it's perfection and it's harmony with the gospel when it's in the right place and we know what it is and we've heard the last two weeks about being anxious and uh, in in preparing for this um, I really went back to the law and seeing um, what that is and what it's attached to and it's something that's attached to all of us we're all, we have this flesh As flesh of who we are. And that flesh equals the law. And the law equals what? Sin and death. But there's this other thing at work in us as believers. It's the spirit of God. And there's grace there. There's Christ's finished work and life. And the contrast there. So I want to take you just a minute to Romans 7. Um, Scott's had us there. I believe Brad took us there. Uh, and it gives us good insight into the law and what Jesus' death on the cross has accomplished. Romans 7, one says, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. In the next couple of verses, it, it talks about a, a, a married woman and her husband and being, her being bound to him as long as he lives, and when he dies, that she's no longer bound to him. And when I first looked at this, I was troubled. I, I, I was trying to figure it all out because I'm reading, okay, the law's not binding on a person as long as he lives, and a woman's not bound to her, her husband as long as he lives, and I was getting confused. I'm saying, wait a minute, is that, am I the wife, the, the, the married woman here? And is it the death of the husband? What's my, who's my husband? And I'm saying all that to you to say, I, I stopped and I paused here to see, really, what has what Christ accomplished? Listen, John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In Romans 7 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But listen to Romans 8 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. I'm born of the flesh, I have the flesh. My husband, in this case, would be who? Adam, the first Adam, the flesh. As long as I live, I'm living in the flesh. It's I who live, right? This is our story. We're born of the flesh. We're bound to the penalty of the law which is what? The law of sin and death. Married to it, if you will, as long as we live. But what did God do? He sent his son. Appropriate time of year for us to hear this. God sent his son. God in the person of Christ became flesh. He took on all the offense all the sin, all of our failings where we don't measure up to the law. Did he abolish the law? No. He says he came to fulfill the law. He's taken on the sin and the death. And he's nailed it to a cross. God made the one who knew no sin to be sin. And by his death, the penalty of the law has been filled for those who belong to him. The penalty of the law. The wages of sin are satisfied in Christ. So, what do we do when we take the supper? You see, I am both of these things in this text. At first, I thought maybe there was something, maybe there was a misunderstanding even in the original language in this thing about my death or the death of this thing that is my husband causes me to be free. But as I study, I see it's both. Christ has nailed the penalty of sin and death on the cross. And Romans 7, 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Our death is with Christ as well. So both is accomplished. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim his death, our death in him. To the law, sin and death, anxiousness, worry, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth, Father. that in it you reveal to us who you are and who we are. And Father, I pray as we see how we are lacking, Father, how we are prone to anxiousness, prone to the flesh. Father, you remind us of Christ. Father, I pray as we take this supper, the finished work of Christ, the end of the penalty of the law, your righteousness for us and in us is in view, Father, that we can take this supper with great joy, worship, and a work that's completed and finished in Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. I think there's there's a tendency for us to um, uh, hear the word, hear the preached word, and it, it does its work to make us uneasy. We can go to anxiousness, or we can head directly to Christ. God sent his son. We put his glory on display by getting the gospel right. God sent his son. He took on our offense. This body was broken for us. We share in his death. Let's eat. I want to echo Scott's words. Um, Do you trust him? His provision is Christ. By his blood, our sins are covered. By his death, the law sin and death is fulfilled. It's done. Do you trust him? Let's proclaim his death. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a time of worship and giving, Father, I pray that we are a believing people and we are a trusting people and your provision is sufficient. And Father, as we Give gifts and offering, Father, I pray that it's out of an abundant heart, thankful and grateful for the finished work of Christ. Father, help us to seek first the kingdom of God. Father, Christ is our righteousness. Grow us in that. We pray in his name. Amen. Stay with
0: me. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are altogether lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increased, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his word. God, I'm thankful for your word, that by it we may know you more deeply. I'm thankful that you're trustworthy. I'm thankful that there is God-given provision and peace for both eternal things and temporal things in your word. And I pray that this temporal life we live is done so in reflection to what we know our eternal realities are. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for provision outside of ourselves. Thank you for accomplishing and achieving what we could never accomplish on our own. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good day.